we are working our way through the double tradition. Remember there's the triple tradition, which begins with Mark, then Matthew, and Luke, and sort of proves that Mark was the source for Matthew and Luke without question. It's clear that they are quoting him, sometimes loosely, sometimes closely, often correcting and adjusting and massaging situation and sequence of events, but for the most part they're utilizing Mark pretty closely in the writing of their Gospels. But then you hit material that is found only in Matthew and in Luke, and that's the double tradition. And we began looking at that several weeks ago with the Sermon on the Mount material, the Beatitudes especially, which most people are thinking of when they think about the Sermon on the Mount. And we noted how Luke uh, interpreted process um, with the woes, whereas Matthew interpreted, you know, with in spirit phrase additions. And we have followed their approach, sometimes on, sometimes off, sometimes parallel, sometimes loosely paraphrastic. Today we're going to see yet another example, and especially a couple of examples, where we actually have some teachings of Mark that are used to anchor some of this stuff from Q. But let's begin with Matthew 5.21. The beginning of another section of the Sermon on the Mount that is sometimes called the You Have Heard It Said Unto You's, where Jesus takes a law from the, from the Hebrew Bible, a law from the Mosaic Covenant, Sometimes from the Ten Commandments, sometimes from the commentary portions on the Ten Commandments, sometimes portions of the law, and interprets it, applies it, amplifies it, extends it, pushes it to the extreme. Take a look at what he says in Matthew 21 and following. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Hmm. Well, I think we're all in trouble. <laughs> much room there. For That's I, I can't find any wiggle room. I mean, who hasn't been angry with somebody? So you raise your hand, I'm going to shoot you. That's interesting. You says get without, angry at uh -huh. The King James adds without a cause. Without cause, which is a later edition. So which is true. But a wise edition. That's a lazy, later edition. <laughs> that's a later <laughs> edition. So that's, that's not what room. was that's not what, actually that's not what it. That's not what's in the uh, autograph. Not even close. Didn't Paul say something a whole lot like this also? Yeah, Paul quotes from this. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is part of Damn. the material. We're into Can't a section where there are actually citations that Paul pulls. This is stuff that's from the teaching tradition of Jesus. There is no parallel in Mark for this. There is a parallel, but we're not yet there in Luke. We're not quite there yet. Note what he says. You've heard it said unto you, and then he quotes what? What does he quote? What's he quoting? 
Do not murder? Yeah. That sounds like a Ten Commandments. Yeah. Thou shalt not kill. In the Ten Commandments, the little finger of fire came out in the movie in Cecil B. DeMille's, and it came around and it hit you in the face. Thou shalt not kill. I mean, that's the biggie. That, that's, that's it. He's quoting the big ones, the Ten Commandments. Whoever murders shall be liable judgment. It's an interpretation on it. But, not, and I say to you, and then gives uh, interpretation, he uses the contrasting, but, but, as if the Ten Commandments aren't good enough. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. This comes immediately, just a few sentences after, Matthew quotes him as saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then we noted that that phrase that we found down in Matthew 24, 35, and in Mark 13, 21, and in Luke 21, 33, where Jesus says, and it's an identical quote in all three cases, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In which he seems almost to be elevating his words above the law. What was that? That's in Matthew 24, 35, Mark 13, 31, and Luke 21, 33. He's talking about my words. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. The emphasis there should be never pass away. Uh After having said earlier in Matthew 5, for truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, Not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Which, of course, says, essentially, the the law will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. And now he's saying, heaven and earth may pass away. No, will pass away. But my words will never pass away which places his words above the law. And now he's doing something very similar. When he quotes the law and then uses the contrasting, but I say to you that if you're angry, if you hate in your heart, With a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or a sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. 
Is this kind of interpretation or expansion, is this unprecedented in rabbinic tradition? Or? It's unprecedented to go the other direction. What the rabbis often did was they, 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 they ameliorated the law. They, they reduced its requirements. They inter interpreted it to the point that, oh, you could get out of it by doing this or not doing that. Here he's saying not only is murder a violation of the law, but just hating in your heart, being angry with somebody, insulting somebody, calling them a fool is the equivalent of murder. Seems to be a little bit over the top. <laughs> you <laughs> Thank think? You. It is hyperbolic interpretation. Jesus is taking the law and pushing it to an extreme by seating the importance not in the letter of the law, murder, but in the motivation that is behind murder. The emotional motivation that is usually, frequently, often behind murder. Anger, insult, judgment. Who's the counsel, do you suppose? The counsel is like the courts, the law. We'll see that in just a moment. We'll see that explicated in just a second here. Jesus is taking the law and making it harder. Not doing what the rabbis did and making it easier. Not, not trying to make it easier to keep the law. He's pointing out it's impossible to keep the law. By showing that it's the motivations behind the letter that's important and not so much the letter itself. Hmm. Is that not a strong argument for the usual interpretation of kill versus murder too? Or no? Is it possible to kill without murdering? Well, that's what or, you just said. It depends on your motivation. Thank you. That's the reason why the okay. question is one of murder. I got you. Okay. Now it makes more sense. Because if I smash into a car tonight, drive into the house, he, you know, swerves into my lane, I hit him and the guy dies, I have killed him. The accident has killed him. I'm driving the vehicle that killed him. Mm -hmm. But did I murder the man? No. Will I be beaten down with quite a bit of guilt over it? You better believe it. But that's misplaced, and I know it, but my nature as a human being will not allow me to get out of it so easily. But they had those distinguishing, they distinguished between that in the Old Testament, too, with the cities of refuge. They distinguished between that in the Old Testament in multiple different layers, in multiple different ways, not just with murder, but with most of the law. We distinguish between that in the United States today and our own jurisprudence system. The difference between manslaughter, first and second degree murder. Involuntary manslaughter? Huh? Involuntary manslaughter? Involuntary is most voluntary. So I mean we've got, we've got those distinctions in our legal system, which quite frankly we learn from here. Mm -hmm. Jesus is, say, is, is, is not breaking with that conception but instead he's going behind it to those motivations and pointing out that what is critical is what's going on in here, in your heart, in, in, in your inner soul. And if, if you are hating with your heart and being cruel and vicious to others and judging others, you might as well be guilty of murder. 
because you're doing it inside. If even if the person isn't dead, he's going to say this like minute about adultery. Let's stick with murder for right What's now. the progression here? It sort of seems to meander here, but it looks like the yep. you fool is the worst thing you could possibly do. Well, each one follows one from the other, but you fool is a judgment that you're making of another person. Their worth, their value, their intelligence, their moral rectitude. You're making a judgment of somebody else, and uh, that judgment then can often reflect, you know, either a desire to kill them or, or an emotional outburst which then results in violence back. Also, often the, the basis for violence comes with the insult, comes with the judgment, comes with the anger, the hatred. And anger, anger is a weak word translation there. Hatred is the concept. What, what's your translation of fool? I don't have my... I, have, I was going to ask the same thing because this 26 translation has, it, 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 with the three other ones that it puts down here, it indicates that it's talking about a judgment on their being saved or not, specifically because it says, like, it is, you cursed fool and anyone who looks down on his brother as a lost soul, that was another one, and while, ev while whoever calls down curses upon him. So it seems as though there's a leaning towards... Judgmentalism. Judging his soul, judging him as a safe person or not. We often think of fool as being an intellectual thing, and it has that context in our daily living. More rectitude, salvation, position with God, position in righteousness is all part of that. My wife, I guess, wrote in here, fool equals godless one. Well, yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's getting close to being, you know, that's why they say April Fool's Day is the atheist's holiday. <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, <coughs> anyway, that's the kind of that's the kind of. I guess we wouldn't really want to do that because then we'd be put in this category, right? <laughs> you see, that's thank you. It's when you make those types of judgments about someone's inner nature, personhood, value, spiritual worth, moral rectitude, salvation, position with God. When you make those types of judgments, when somebody says to somebody else. God's never going to forgive you for doing that. Well, who the hell are you to say that, you jackass? You've just, that person who said that is just doing this right here, saying you fool. And it's just as bad as murder in a spiritual sense, in an inner sense. For often those emotions, those attitudes, those judgments, those positions fuel the outward act of murder. So when you are offering, now here he shifts, verse 23. When you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So you're in line to make your offering at the temple. 
got your lamb or your pigeon or whatever. And you remember, oh no, I've estranged from my brother. I owe him seven fifty, and I haven't paid him back, and he's really mad at me. Or I stole my neighbor's camel. I need to get. I need to go make restitution for it, or whatever. You know, he, go leave your offering in there. You know, hold your place in line, <laughs> and, and go and go and make restitution. Get right with them. Settle the dispute. Notice it's not somebody, you have something against somebody else. You know, it's not that Pete has wronged me. It's that I've wronged Pete and I need to go correct this. Is it talking specifically with you owing them money or payment? It seems consistent throughout the, from the beginning to the end. That, that is the language used, but so frequently that is simply a metaphor for any and all debts, be they monetary or otherwise. It's interesting that it doesn't say, it says to leave your altar, so you're not to use the money that you were No, to. that's already God's. Absolutely, yeah, to take that to go pay your debt. No, you go make restitution in some other way, you know, promissory note, something. So that you're okay with them before you presume to come to God. I guess you couldn't swat them and get it out of your system and then come back. <laughs> I don't know. No, because it's they swat you. It's not okay. that they owe you anything, it's that you owe them. You might owe them a swat. You know? you go. Beat me up so that I can go. <laughs> yeah, that's so I can go make the rest of my own. But it sounds okay. like to me you have to make amends to what you've done wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You do. It, you you need it, you need before you make your offering to God to be in the position to be capable of making your offering to God. You need to have done the best you can in all circumstances to make sure that you are right with others. We may never have to give again. <laughs> there, we go. Go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Here's an out, right? <laughs> You just got through telling us that we're human and we're always, we're all, you know, doing yeah. this. We're all guilty yeah, of this anger bit. When, when they ask you at the council why your, you know, contributions are down, then, you're just well, like, well, I'm <laughs> preaching in that. <laughs> <laughs> why do I have a summer congregation? They took it literally. <laughs> it's been months since they've been back. <laughs> I wonder why. But I thought the gifts were supposed to be left at the altar, so they're still here. The gifts are still there, yeah, exactly. Good point. Good point. I could use that as my defense. But we never Maybe. came back. Before we move on, let's look at Luke. Luke 12, 57 and following. Nothing here about murder or motivation. Why, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go to your accuser before a magistrate, on the way, make an effort to settle the case. Settle out of court. Don't go to court. Settle out of court. Or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. Now, where is he quoting that from? It has nothing to do with the context that we have in Matthew. Nothing, not, not, 
Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Verse, chapter 12 of Luke, verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, It is going to rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And then he moves on into the passage in Luke that we just read a moment ago. The watchfulness for the coming end of the age. He's preaching. What are you reading from now? I'm reading from Luke right above where we're 12. I went back to verse 54 to give it its context in Luke. And it's not even remotely close mm -hmm. to what's going on here in Matthew. Well, it sounds like he's angry. It's the same story. Oh, yeah, hypocrites. Yeah. It's the <laughs> yeah, same story. Yeah. I mean, it's the same basic story about settling your advice, about settling your your disagreement, your debts before you go to court. Sending out of court is always a good idea, by the way. It's very prosaic, uh, and it, it's, it really is in Matthew, too. It seems to be tacked on, but here it's just sort of obvious. You know, it has no, so what? You know, I mean, what, what kind of, obviously you'd want to do something if you thought the as alternative was to go to jail. Or as you're coming to the end of the age, you need to have all your affairs settled. Which is what he's saying. <laughs> You know, you can see, you can interpret the signs and the seasons. You know it's coming to an end. You need to settle your disagreements, your debts with others before you get there. And then you can spiritualize and make a metaphor out of the part about the court. That's not a civil court you're talking about so much as it is God's court in this context. Having just talked about the end of the world, he then says that. Using the same story, differently. Well, the, the lead-in is, I guess, what he's talking about is, you know, you know, man up, you know, judge for yourselves what's right and don't wait for the court. Yeah, settle this stuff first now. Don't wait for God to do it in the spiritual sense. Don't wait for a court to do it in the literal sense. Settle it now. Hmm. Hmm. But there isn't really a, a topic sentence like that in Matthew, is there? The, uh, well, where he talks about what? Well, just for, first he's talking about leaving your gift before the altar. Right. Uh, that's in Matthew. Uh, I mean, that's yeah, that's in Matthew. Matthew. Mm -hmm. The set in the context of oh, when I you're see. going in for worship. There's a sense in which there is an equality of idea there. In one, you're getting ready for the end and God's return. And in Matthew, you're getting ready to go into worship. So you settle it up. But, but the next part is when you're on your way to court. Right. So it's not the same, same set of circumstances. You're on a different trip. In a sense. The idea, though, is, is there is a relationship there. You, you need to be make sure that you are in a right relationship with your brother and sister when you face the judge, be it earthly or heavenly. 
It still sounds like he's kind of putting down the law because the, the lead up to the murder in Matthew is the one about the mm-hmm. better be more righteous than the Pharisees routine. Exactly. That's exactly. He, you know, thank you. That lead up, your, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees who were exemplars at minimizing the law to make it possible to try to live it. And here he's saying, nah, it's the other way around, folks. It's not that he's minimizing the law. It's, he's, he seems to be minimizing their... That's what the Pharisees are doing. Yeah, their interpretation and the way they're living their lives. The Pharisees are saying, here, here's how you can approximate this, this anemic version of the law so that you can then say you have attained righteousness for yourself. And Jesus is saying, no, you must exceed that level that the Pharisees claim is possible. Far beyond it. This shows the reality. The law is beyond our attainment by our own doing. The motivations that lie behind murder, we all fall prey to. And that continues in the very next sequence, beginning in Matthew 5.33. Actually, no. No, 27. 27. 27. Why would I want to skip this one? This is the better one. You have heard it. Now notice at the very beginning of uh, Matthew 5.21, you have heard it said. Again, you have heard that it was said. Yeah. We're going to have this several times, by the way. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her or his heart. You know, Jimmy Carter commented on this. Yeah, he sure did. I mean, the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what the law says. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her with her in his heart. Hmm. So but he's look, trying to tell them it's impossible to keep the law. Here you are preaching, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law, and you'll be okay. And he just keeps breaking it down. And whenever they think they're doing it, he breaks it down. The Pharisees' further. mantra was, you can keep the law, and here's how. And he's rep- responding with, nah. <laughs> The law is far beyond the letter. What is the law is that which is behind it. And that is impossible for a human to keep. He, he, he keeps busting it out. He just did the previous. Here we're going to do it again. If everyone who looks at a woman, let's universalize this. But everyone who looks at somebody else with lust has already committed adultery in their hearts. It's not just something that guys have a problem with, friends. I mean, this is supposed to be an inclusive language translation. Why didn't they fix that? Chuck, <coughs> Chuck liked that one. Would you note that? Please? Yeah. And then notice what he does. What Matthew does. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Boy, we hope that's hyperbole again. <laughs> a hyperbolic statement? Yeah. Well, let's take a look at how somebody else quoted this one. Uh -huh. This actually comes from Mark. Context doesn't. Why are we studying that? But statement does. This is one of those teachings that actually is in Mark. Okay. Mark 9, 43. If your hand causes you Mark to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the, their worm never dies the fire is never quenched. Now you may notice that your translation, except for the King James, lacks verses 44 and 46. The NIV lacks it. The NRSV lacks it. All modern translations will lack verses 44 and 46. It goes straight from 43 to 45 and from 45 to 47. It's because the oldest manuscripts, those going back, uh, second, third, fourth, and fifth century manuscripts that contain Mark do not contain verses 44 and 46 because they are both quotes of verse 48. And the scribe had apparently liked that verse 48 and thought it was a good way to conclude that sta statement about hands and foot. And so he added it in the margin and then got added into the body text later so that by the 10th century, translations had it in the body text. And the King James comes from manuscripts that were uh, collected and collated between the 10th and the 14th century. Hence, this is a little phrase that got added in. This is a little textual work got added in. But in the earliest copies of the New Testament, those, th that phrase where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, which is found in verses 44 and 46 in the King James, doesn't exist. Only in verse 48 does it exist. In the I thought I'd, I'd read over and over that first century Jews didn't have much of a notion of hell as a place of fire. By the time of Jesus, they had a conception of hell as that, as the uh, idea of hell as Gehenna, the trash the pit in the Hinnom Valley next to Jerusalem where this is a metaphor where they would throw their trash and they would be burned up. That was the trash burning the pit there in in the Hinnom Valley next to next to Jerusalem. And uh, that's an analogy for hell that Jesus used on multiple occasions and was common in the first century. Well, did the so Greeks or Romans help them with that analogy? Where did and they, they got from? their understanding of hell from the Babylonians. Ah. So is it, would this, do you think this would be Sheol? And, and no, Sheol is a place not of punishment so much as it is of soul sleep. 
Sheol is the Hebrew conception prior to the Babylonian captivity of the afterlife, uh, where everybody goes and sleeps with their ancestors. And that's not a negative thing. Um, Gehenna, the concept of hell as a place of punishment, was an idea that the Jews learned, adopted for their, themselves as a place of punishment um, during the Babylonian captivity. So when they came back from Babylon, they had this idea and they ran with it. Up until then, the devil lived and walked around on the earth. Still does. But, yeah. <laughs> but that was but, uh, the concept of hell or of, of Gehenna as a punishment place was one that developed after the Old Testament period, at the end of the Old Testament period. And uh, but was not given full flesh until uh, the first century. Jesus used one of the common metaphors in his day for afterlife punishment. It's like getting thrown over there into the trash pit in the Hinnom Valley and being burned up. That's how he likened hell. So are you saying hell isn't mentioned in the Bible until the end of the Old Testament? Sheol is mentioned, which is the... Uh, under side of the earth where dead people go to sleep for eternity. And it's not a place of punishment in the Old Testament. It's a place of abode, rest, i.e. rest in peace concept. Yeah. Uh, the concepts of, you start seeing afterlife as a place of punishment showing up in the, the post-Babylonian exile period in the 400s B.C., 500s B.C., you start seeing conceptions of hell as a punishment place. And the Jewish interpretation and reinterpretation of older passages from the Old Testament in that way than following the Babylonian captivity. And it's an idea that they picked up in the Babylonian captivity, pretty much. Why did they pick it up in the Babylonian captivity? I don't know why they picked it up. They liked, they liked it. it. <laughs> It, it well, it, they probably they looked upon like there, many probably. of them looked lo upon their their captivity in Babylon as being hell. Yeah. And they heard the this concept of an afterlife where you're pun an active afterlife, not where your soul is sleeping, but where you're being punished if you've been evil. And they latched onto that idea. And they got that from the Babylonians, or well, that's one of the sources. Babylonian and Assyrian had, people had a, a world mythological view which had an active afterlife of either punishment or reward. Prior to the captivity in Babylon for the Jews, um, they had no conception of an active afterlife in heaven that was for most people. Now, there were some people who got to go be with God, but they were very special people like Edith and several others. Most people, they go and sleep with their ancestors. David went and slept with his ancestors. I mean, the kings got to go sleep with their ancestors. They didn't get to go to heaven. Only certain special prophets and very, very holy people got to go be in heaven. Hmm. And for the most part, when you died, you went and slept. And it didn't matter how good or how bad you were. You went and slept with your ancestors. Well, the worst thing you could do was to have your bones scattered so you wouldn't have any body to sleep in. And the concepts of resurrection also came there as well. How about the Pharisees? Did they believe in hell? Yes. Hell was, a by this point in time, except for certain groups in the, amongst the Sadducees, the concept of hell was universally accepted. 
an active afterlife where punishment occurred. And the equal concept of a resurrection. Now, the Sadducees didn't accept the concept of resurrection either. The Pharisees did. For them, for the Sadducees, when you died, you went and slept with your ancestors. They contended the old pre-Babylonian captivity conception of afterlife. Whereas the Pharisees believed, well, you couldn't have a disembodied spirit. You had to have a body to live in. So you would, the righteous would be raised from the dead and live again. Whereas the unrighteous, they go to Gehenna. They go to hell. What does it mean in 48 when he's quoting there, where their worm never dies? What is that? And the fire is never quenched. Where the worm never dies, i.e. You're, you're eternally being eaten up. The idea is a piece of rotting meat with the maggots and the worms eaten it. And they never quit. And the fire is never quenched. That is um, that little statement. Jesus might have originated it, but by the second century it was very common amongst Jewish usage. So their worm meaning the uh, tormenting that goes on? The, the continual consumption being consumed by death, the worm that consumes the rotting meat, the maggots, that can be, that concept of consumption is one of the images for eternal damnation that was being articulated. Just like fire consumes and destroys to ash, so also that worm consumes eternally. And it doesn't stop. It's not that you don't reach a point where you are no more. It is never ending. Image. The Hinnom Valley, next door to Jerusalem. When you're in Jerusalem today, you, the highway runs along the side of the Hinnom Valley. You look and look down, and you're like, "Oh, that's hell." Okay, <laughs> take a picture. <laughs> it, we, we did. I got a picture of hell. <laughs> and you know, that's Arabs live there now. <laughs> no, pretty close. <laughs> so anyway, that's um, now that's that's that reference there. But those two verses, remember, the versification of the Old Test of, of the Scriptures, both old and new, didn't occur until the Middle Ages. So, to add a verse in wasn't a, wasn't a biggie, and that's why the King James will have a verse forty-four and a verse forty-six. But modern translations will simply skip those verses, and you don't really notice it. And he's got that thing about salt right after that with the fire. What? Isn't that a little disjointed? <laughs> or, yeah, okay. Get on, Mark. Hmm. So, look, you can see how Matthew took, was utilizing Mark here and anchoring onto it this other stuff. Now, now, let's do some interpretation before we move on. Now, let's... I want... Um, Look down at the bottom. He sees for Matthew 18, 8. There's another. Uh, Matthew quotes it twice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, maybe he forgot he'd done it before. I don't know. But if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. He quotes it again in 1880. That's interesting. Now, think about the, 
let's think about it as an interpretive tool here in Matthew. What's he say about adultery? Because it, he uses, and notice he, he pulls I, which is the third one in Mark, first, right after adultery. Everyone who looks at a woman, let's, 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 let's fix that. Everyone that looks at someone else with lust has already committed adultery in their hearts. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Yes, he's getting those numbers again, isn't he? Yeah. Tear it off. Maybe that's what Pete was trying to do, get rid of his thumb. <laughs> Did it offend you? Throw it away. <laughs> the nail offend you? Um, okay. What, what might that mean? How, what, did, what, what, is, what does it mean in the context that Matthew is pulling it in? Well, I have to point out that most people who do this are probably using both eyes. <laughs> Stereo. What's the deal with the right eye? <laughs> well, now wait a minute. This is kind of literal, you know. <laughs> Maybe they're winking. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it means. That's what it is. I usually wink with my left eye. It's hard to wink. I mean, I've heard that that's what they do, both eyes. You can't wink uh, if you only have one you eye. You can look with lust with both eyes instead of just one. Yeah, that's what I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're told. Ooh. That's your <laughs> Yeah, they told you mm. well, son. What do you think? What might how how might you interpret this? What is Jesus telling us? Does he really mean rip out your eyeball if you're looking with lust at people? No, he's this is hyperbolic, hyperbolic again. Thank you. <laughs> what does he mean? Well, if it was Paul, he'd be telling you to throw those people out of church. No. That are the troublemakers and the whatevers. Wouldn't it? The troublemakers? Yeah, the people that are speaking the false prophets in the church. You didn't say don't listen to them and get rid of them. Uh, yeah. Isn't that, yeah, isn't that members? Isn't that members? Well, people who are looking at others with lust, uh, that would be the issue. No, not, that, that wouldn't be how Paul would do it. Um, what might... Isn't he just wanting you to really focus on the root of what's, what's causing it? Don't be looking Look around. Yourself. Don't be casting your eye looking for objects of lust. In the modern context, don't look at pornography. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It doesn't do you any good. It makes you frustrated. Cut that out. I mean, this, this thing is awfully dadgum expensive. It's hard to replace. But you can throw that other stuff away. All you're doing is objectivizing people, making them into objects, not people, and it's causing trouble. So that's one way to interpret it in the modern context. Well, it, it, with all of these, it's kind of the same. He's trying to take the point of the focus off of the result, off of what we, what they're saying is wrong, and going back behind it. And it's not the adultery, or it's not the, you know, the sin. It's what's What's motivating it? What is empowering the adultery? Here he says, you know, it's, it's looking with lust at somebody else in your heart. And if you've lusted in your heart, you've essentially committed adultery, which, you know, just about gets all of us. Well, that, by the way, emphasizes the fact that you, <laughs> who are you to judge? Somebody else. Because you're guilty of it, too. 
which is something Jesus would say to the Pharisees and actually does on multiple occasions. But then he also indicates here what's important so much is, is actually that which motivates the adulterer. Deal with that. Deal with that. Works pretty well with the eye. How about the hand? Does your hand motivate you to? I mean, <laughs> it depends which one. Are you right hand or left hand? We can address right that. Left hand. Right hand. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Oh. Well, <laughs> you brought it up. Uh, no, you brought it up. <laughs> so well, you finished it. No. God help us. <laughs> Let's see. Let's look at what Luke also copies. Yeah. By the way, what's coming next isn't in Mark. Verse 31 of Matthew 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now let's look at Luke before we go back and look at that. Luke 16, 18. 16, 18 of Luke. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. <coughs> Matthew seems to be, to me, a little bit more correct in terms of qualifying it. Because I, I think back of you know, God's relationship with his, the house of Israel and how he truly did divorce but they were unfaithful, so that was okay. Mm -hmm. But if you look at just Luke, then there would be a problem there because he doesn't qualify that. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Which might make it possible to divorce but not remarry. Right. Yeah, but, gee, but then the bride, but what about the bride, though? Mm -hmm. I know, I know. But it just seems more complete in Mark, I guess. It's like there's a little subset taken from And Mark. whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's right. Yeah. Notice what Luke does. He puts the onus on the man. Mm -hmm. Notice what Matthew does. Now, the onus is still on the man, but he does what the law does. He focuses on the woman. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except for the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. It doesn't necessarily say that he does it. It just says he causes her to commit adultery. And who, that's assuming she remarries. Well, it reflects the Jewish conception of the law, which kind of tends to place the onus more on the man. I mean, on the, on the woman. And it does assume that she remarries. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That hits the guy. Hmm. Well, that's pretty tough, isn't it? Why? Because I can think of a whole lot of people that this hits. 
Why? Why does Jesus do this? I mean, I mean, here he quotes the law for that certificate of divorce is allowed. And then he says, no, no. That's the ground that enables people to commit adultery. Why? Is it the value of unfaithfulness? It's the, well, it's the, you notice the exception that he does allow is on the ground of unchastity, where she has run astray. And yeah, well, you, could, you could invert it too, by the way. In our modern culture today, our culture would allow that. When he goes astray, she could do the divorcing. She does in our culture today. Well, and it's interesting that God did divorce them. I mean, that, that out does allow what God himself did in the Old Testament. Yeah, because he likened, uh, understood the covenant relationship of, of worship right. and, and alignment on a religious ground. He equated that with marriage. marriage. Because he gives them a bill of divorce. Precisely. Why does Jesus make this so much more difficult? Because that's what he's doing. Marital infidelity is nothing new. Is it because of the relationship and what, how it's been treated, how he treats the relationship? It's a value that he's putting on that? He's putting a very high value level. He's setting the bar really high for the covenant relationship in marriage. And he's saying it is so high that even if you divorce, you shouldn't breach that relationship boundary there by getting remarried. Paul actually was really easy on this one. He says, you know, that if a, if, a, if, if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever doesn't want to be married to the believer, then you're both free. This is if you were never married. Paul quotes this. He quotes this very passage from Q. And then provides his own opinion on the subject, which makes it a whole lot easier for believers who were married to unbelievers and the unbeliever wanted out. I guess it's assumed that if you divorced your wife on the grounds of unchastity, she would remarry. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's been playing around. She she's going to go marry the she other. She would be committing adultery in that situation, and anyone who married her would be uh -huh. committing adultery. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, her. she doesn't seem to have the choice to remain celibate. Well, the assumption is is that she's playing around, yeah. playing around. And the guy what caused her to play around, he's going to be in trouble too. Yeah. He can't even marry her. Jesus is making this hard, just like he made the issue on murder more difficult, just like he made the issue on uh, adultery, lust, more difficult. He's making this one more difficult too. Why? Why is Jesus making the law so hard? So hard. I thought he was showing the Pharisees. The Pharisees, nobody can... We're trying to get out, we're trying to weasel out of it. Nobody can keep all these laws. Pharisees were continually trying to amend and adjust and massage the law to make it possible for them 
to live a life that they can then say, look, I have kept the law in all of its particulars. I have done what the law says to do. What, else, what more do I need? I've been good. I have done everything that I understand the law tells me to do. I haven't broken any of the laws. And, and, and it, they have interpreted the scripture, they have interpreted the law in such a way as to enable them to be able to say that. And Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees essentially here, is saying, <laughs> no. If, you've, if you hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. If you divorce, you cause them to commit adultery. And then you commit adultery if you get remarried. So who in the heck are you to judge? Another? Well, now, but if, if I remarry yeah. someone who has not been married before... But I, you were married before. He made it worse. Yeah. You so were married you were the before. One married. You can't so marry anybody else. You know, I, I divorced her on grounds of unchastity. I'm cool. Yeah, that's I'm talking, Mark, that's look. Mark, not Luke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Luke took it to you. It is also... No. Matthew. Matthew. And they're both quoting Q, so guess This what? is not in Mark. So it's got to be coming from Q, probably. Well, it's interesting. What I was thinking of is that there is some uh, criticism of someone who causes adultery. Yes. Uh, I mean, that uh -huh. uh, relegating this woman to, uh, not relegating, but condemning her to adultery is, is I think, criticized by it is. That's you, you cause them to commit adultery. adultery. But the but the in the in the Jewish context, a man who divorces his wife, even though she's committed adultery, she's been unfaithful. He himself is not free to then go marry somebody else. Now, they were in the interpretations and the adjustments to the law and everything else that came later, but Jesus is saying, no. If the covenant relationship is binding, even if you have a divorce, it's still binding and becomes adultery. If she goes off and marries somebody else, it better be true for you too. Yeah, except that you could kill her out of, uh, not out of anger. But Look at Luke 18. Anyone who divorces married. his wife and marries another commits adultery. Well, what if you killed your wife? Not out of anger, you understand. Except on the grounds of unchastity. I'm reading from Luke. Yeah. I know, but how Anyone can you separate the two? Uh, I bet a bunch of. I'm people. reading right now from Luke. <laughs> <laughs> God, I know. Now, um, if you want, if you were to, okay, let's 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 take this over here because let me let me be blunt. I, I think that Matthew probably contains a slightly more accurate rendition of the Q version. Luke is adjusting it for his Gentile yeah. audience, so you got to be suspect of him there. But let's add that in over here into Luke. <laughs> so why are you reading from Luke? Anyone? Because I'm a Gentile. <laughs> Anyone who divorces his wife. No exceptions. Are you on Luke? Anyone who. Okay. Anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, and marries another, commits adultery. So there's an escape clause. On that. Well, that would be. But in, in Matthew's version. The focus is more on her because you, you couldn't give your wife a bill of divorcement unless she had been unfaithful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but I'm not sure what the that was the ground for divorce. 
was irreconcilable differences didn't get it. No, <laughs> uh, unchastity was the ground. Well, then that's but redundant. They, Why do they, they put they that getting, in there? Why would you have to put that in there if that was the only ground? Because they were allowing people to do it on other grounds. Aha. The Pharisees. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because they did it, so they that, had to come exactly up with a law. Point. They had irreconcilable differences. This is like that king of England or whatever it was, you know. But I had to go to the Pope, and that's why you look at the Church and all this. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me that Luke is uh -huh. in the age. Right? Well, that's, then, that's, 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 well, that's why he did Luke is tough on the man. That's why they're doing it. Yeah. Luke is tougher on the man, clearly, although in Matthew it's still tough on the man because it says that he is causing her to commit adultery. I can live with that. <laughs> 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 All right. What did the Old Testament say about the divorce? Um, if, you, if you were to go back to the original, uh, what did that speak, speak to? Did it have any exceptions? The exception was unchastity. And that's the only one. As far as I remember, I'd have to go look it up. And so as the time went on, the Pharisees kind of changed that a little bit. So it became... Okay they gave other grounds. Uh, inability to produce offspring was, became a ground. Allowed you to marry somebody else. And they pulled straight from the Old Testament to justify that. Abraham. Yeah. Was <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Did they ever speak to not... I mean, the multiple wives was not a problem. Yeah, but so it, was all, it was expensive. <laughs> it's still <laughs> a tough Tiger Woods about that one. Yeah, really, <laughs> really expensive. Uh, the grounds for divorce in the law, I believe, was unchastity. And if the if neither if if the wife was not faithful to the husband, that he could give her a bill of divorcement. And Jesus is an essentially saying. At least I understand it this way. Even in such cases, it's adultery if she then goes and marries somebody else. But, but back to Lisa's point, it was not considered adultery to have two wives. No. Okay. Abraham had two wives and two concubines. And we had others who had the same kind of thing. It's pretty common. Like about Jacob. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they, they really, when, when did that change? I mean, in terms of... Uh, During the beginning, at the beginning, it, well, it changed for the common people at the beginning of the imperial period. But, of course, look at David and look at Solomon. I was thinking about David when he was <laughs> and his son and his wife's son. It started applying to the royalty later. And you also have to remember that when you're dealing with people like Solomon, most, almost all of his marriages were political marriages connected with alliances made for diplomatic reasons. And that contained a different set of expectations. Well, of course, God had more than one wife. So, I mean, you know, Israel and Judah, a whole lot of whole bar. Kind of north and south, you know. Uh -huh. what, what's the imperial period they're talking about? David. Actually, Saul, but, but by the Davidic period, you started seeing that falling away from your common people. The freedom to have multiple spouses. But they weren't really married the way we say marriage ex until they had consummated the marriage anyway, right? Consummation was the marriage. Right. Explain more, what, what would be the motivation of Luke writing to Gentiles to to raise the standard here in his, I mean, we'll just speculate. Because 
uh, infidelity was a severe problem in the Gentile communities too, and they themselves recognized that. But putting it within the context of the Hebrew law was a little more problematic. So he's stating what would to the Gentiles be an obvious fact that infidelity is problematic. And so and, and adultery violates the marriage covenant. And even via divorce, you're causing adultery. Or the, 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 um, the grounds for adultery are established or created. The, the adultery, uh, divorce doesn't wipe out the possibility of adultery. <laughs> Which, by the way, in the Gentile community, that was a ridiculous idea. Once the divorce occurred, then adultery no longer... We, we, we sit in the same situation, by the way. In most of our modern world today, once divorce occurs, then adultery is no longer possible in that context. Unless you're having sex with somebody else who's married. You know, the problem with... Two single people cannot commit adultery. They can commit fornication. They cannot commit adultery. But if one or the other is married, then they can commit adultery. And this would say if one or the other has been married. Yes. That state That would really cut it continues. down, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The problem I guess I have with Luke and leaving that part out is, is back to Jesus saying, you know, I came to fulfill the law. And with God divorcing mm -hmm. and then having Christ remarrying, that would be a problem if not for from what's, what Matthew's saying, because Christ could not remarry those groups of people who were already divorced from him. Well, except that he died. <laughs> right. <laughs> and death is the only, uh, the only other ground upon which someone would be free to remarry in the Hebrew, in the Jewish capacity. Which would be why he had to die. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, death is the other ground. If if I if if but I were to and I was married and my wife died in childbirth, yeah. I could turn around and marry, and that's not adultery because she's dead. Right, but he would have that's violated his own law by uh -huh. doing the divorce Kill. in the first place. True, is what I'm saying. I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I don't think Luke Luke considered that an issue, and he was more interested in talking to those Gentiles at that particular moment in time, for whom all this other material is foreign. Or mostly foreign. It sounds to me like notwithstanding the what I say to you construction why Matthew was still mm -hmm. trying to parse the law a bit. He's continually parsing the law. <laughs> He's writing to a Jewish Christian community that is well versed in the law and like the Pharisee believe, Pharisees, and we saw this in the Brethren of James and how they treated how they were had problems with Paul and even intimidated Peter. Um, the, the, the Jewish Christian community believed that, well, what's important is keeping the law. Now that we've lost the temple in Jerusalem, it's been destroyed in 70 AD. We have Jesus as our eternal sacrifice, so we don't have to do sacrifices anymore, but we still need to be keeping that law. Men need to be circumcised. You need to have keep the dietary regulations and the blood purity laws and the, all the other rules and regulations. You've got to keep them all. In other words, Christianity was simply a sect of Judaism to them. Whereas the Lucan communities, the Gentiles, didn't view it that way. Hence how Matthew writes and how he deals with the Jesus material is going to reflect a different approach than, than the Lucan approach. And you can see that even when, uh, even when Luke is quoting the law. As he does right there. 
Matthew 5.33. This has no, what's coming up next, has absolutely no parallel. No parallel in Luke and no parallel in Mark. And it's part of that, you heard it said unto you, now I say unto you. Sequence. Again you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Well, I guess that was before. Just for men, <laughs> whatever women use. Yes. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. I was a witness in a court a couple of months ago, and I got on the witness stand, and the bailiff brought me a Bible, and I had to put my hand on it and raise my right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, Son of God. Uh, did you quote this passage? <laughs> Holy crap. Who has ever gone to serve on a jury? Who's been called to jury duty? Who's certain, just been called to jury duty. Not served, just been called. Both. You have to swear that the information that you're going to give to the court is true to the best of your knowledge and ability. Yes, I do. That's part of our culture. It implies your word is just, you saying what you say is not sufficient. And that's what Jesus says in verse 37. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. In the society at that time, it was common to, to set an oath by swearing on the veracity of something else. Your kids, your lineage, um, on heaven above, on the earth, you know, on your land. I swear on Jerusalem. I swear on my own head. It was pretty common too. We do it with the scriptures, that which we hold holy. Which often makes me wonder, what about those people who don't? Exactly. <laughs> they don't believe that. <laughs> I mean, if Richard Dawkins gets up to take the stand, I'm going to have a problem. How's he going to do that? Um, how do we handle this? Considering that we've all broken it by virtue of the nature of the society and the culture we live in. And why does, and more importantly, why does Jesus do this? Yeah. What's the big deal? <laughs> you've heard it said that it was, again, you have heard that it was said in ancient times, you shall not swear falsely. But carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. That's in the Mosaic Covenants. Not in the Ten Commandments, specifically. Although it derives from the Ten Commandments. It's in the Mosaic Covenant. But I say to you, do not swear at all. 
Isn't he doing the same thing? It's just yes. one more thing. It's just going. This beyond. sequence yeah. of yeah. it was said law. before, and essentially that means in the law. But now mm-hmm. I say to you, it's yet another example of Jesus making it harder, more difficult, mm-hmm. interpreting to the hyperbolic extreme to point out that, quite frankly. The society in which he was living and the Pharisees to, uh, with whom he was conflicting at the point, they weren't doing what God said to do. They're not doing what God wants us to do. They're engaging in all this oath-taking bit. And Jesus is saying, no. No. Let your word be yes, yes, and no, no. Oath-taking is something that we do to each other. Exactly. And then we, we, we draw God into it. Okay, God, be my lap dog. I'm going to prove that I can be trusted. And we put our hands on our Bibles and we raise our right hand. And we make God serve us. And Jesus is saying, no, no. Let it be yes, yes, and no, no. Because anything, anything more than that comes from Satan. The evil Satan. one, Satan, the devil. Anything else has you utilizing the gifts of God as a tool to your own end or to the world's end or to the evil one's end. And I think that's right. Jesus was continually combating the repeated religious peoples, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, setting up of rules and regulations and structures, the rules and regulations of people above God's righteousness and saying, you can be righteous. Well, yeah, by your anemic, watered-down version of what righteousness is, maybe I can. But God has a higher standard than that. And that standard we cannot attain on our own. We can't attain that on our own. Let's look at one more And this is another one of those parallels between Matthew and Luke, straight out of Q. This is really a really neat one. It's another one you have heard it said. (laughs) Of course. Matthew 5, 38. Just in case we haven't gotten the point yet. Exactly. God, God (laughs) is really good at that. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they have ear, nose, and throat doctors, but they don't have eye and teeth doctors uh, together. Um, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. When I was growing up, I understood that the cheeks were <laughs> two halves of your buttocks. And I, that always bothered me. And then I realized it's this, oh, those these cheeks. And if anyone, besides that, was I was always struck down there <laughs> <laughs> by mom and dad, <laughs> not up here. That shows. <laughs> they never struck me up here. They always struck me down. So but, if you only got you on one side, you wait, dad. You're not no. going to yeah, yeah, <laughs> I never did that. <laughs> That's right. One more. And if anyone wants to to sue you, oh, this hurts. And if he wants to sue you and take your coat, 
give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Do we have a different version? <laughs> read, read, read King Jimmy here. Well, you're looking for something that says something different here? No. I mean, that's just incredible that that's there. It's hard. That's incredible. Luke 6.29, the parallel. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Don't ask for them back. Well, Luke doesn't make it any easier. He's just a little more brief. No, in fact, he makes it harder. <laughs> yeah. Because in Matthew, it's talking about someone who wants to borrow from you. Borrow implies that they want to repay. You're going to get it back. <laughs> Luke doesn't say that at all. No. I mean, if you assume begging is just give it or taking with no intent to repay. Well, the second the second half of verse 42 includes borrow, which is different than, yeah, that's what I'm saying. than taking or right. begging. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Huh. But it's the same thing. I mean, obviously the same thing. Okay. I'll ask the blatantly obvious question here. Why did Jesus do this? <coughs> an eye for an eye. Scripture says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I've heard that a bunch recently from certain groups who are wanting justice in the courts. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Do not resist an evildoer. That's what it says. Let him walk all over you. Well, I don't recommend that, but there's something in play here behind the words. Do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Don't strike back is the concept here. Don't hit back. I can remember growing up being told by both my parents, don't strike back. Defend yourself, but don't strike back and never hit a girl. What if the girl has beaten me up? <laughs> well, stop her. Run like hell. <laughs> but don't beat her up. Don't don't hit a girl. Yeah, isn't it turn the other, just turn the other also? It's almost... It's almost going beyond that, saying, stay there, let them continue to do that. Do not respond in kind. And don't leave the situation. Stay there and turn the other. Don't flee so much as it is offer them an opportunity to chase you. <laughs> offer them an opportunity to not do it. By your witness, offer them an opportunity to not behave evilly. It's interesting. Forty-two is yeah. is kind of a different. Yeah, this is a little different. Is Give to everyone who begs from you. Uh, there's not a single time that I don't stop at the exit of Thirty and Jim Miller no, to go to the bank. There's not somebody at that corner. You know where the banks are. With a cup or a sign out looking for money. And I pray as I'm exiting.
please, let God, let the light be green. <laughs> exactly. So I don't have to come to a stop. Then we used to do, little, do this know, little sandwich like bags. That sounds like the law to me. Huh? That sounds like something the Pharisees would have written in. Exactly. <laughs> that, you know, that yeah, is mentality. accepted. Yeah. But if the light is green, you may continue going. That's right. <laughs> 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 I can be a good Pharisee. Yeah. I know how to do that. Don't stop and waste gas. You just there you go. There you go. Environment. Yeah. Thank you, God. I don't have two quarters in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, but you have that dollar. <laughs> yeah. A lot of us think that when when we see a beggar, that somehow or other they are they are scamming us. They're putting one over. They're on trying us. to get money to go buy they some are, ripple. They are taking advantage Crack. of us. And that kind of puts it in the context of the rest of it, you know, which is uh, if you assume begging is some type of a taking advantage of, mm-hmm. like, you know, aggressive assault <coughs> or being sued, you know, then it, then it kind of fits there. You know, is there anything in the point. original text that would give us a different no. interpretation? No. So the, the Greek is very, 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 very harsh, just like this is, very straightforward. This is really hard. Why is Jesus doing it? He's counteracting the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Straightforward, by the way. I mean, if, I mean, to 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 reiterate this slightly here, he says, uh, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, by interpretation, the law would say, strike them back on theirs. He's changing the law again. He is, he is telling you. He's making it harder for the Pharisees. They've got their little laws and he's going above it again, it looks like. Retribution is not a valid course of action. That's God's duty. Not This ours. seems to go far beyond that. <laughs> of course yeah. it does. Um, because it's an exaggeration again. Do not resist an evildoer seems to be embarrassed. Yeah, other translations? So what are some of the other mugged. translations there say? Oh, hey, hey, you forgot to take this. Yeah. Verse 39, what does it say? Other translations. Well, this one says, uh, resist not him that is evil. Another one, you are not to resist an injury. That's Moffat. And don't resist the man who wants to harm you. But whoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek slaps you on one cheek, turn the other one to him also. What does Moffat read again? There's only one line is you are not to resist an injury. An injury. An injury. So the person who's standing at the bus stop getting mugged. Yes. Should not respond. Should just give them everything. Should not respond in kind, but should let them have it. Which actually is not a bad idea, because right. otherwise they might kill you. That's right. Yeah, well, that's right, what they tell you to do in a robbery. That's Don't resist. Here, take part of the pacifist argument is it's an effective way of defending yourself. But they won't kill you then. But they also say, you know, that it's also a, a way of turning the bad karma around, you know, or they're going to call it, you know. And, and, uh, yeah, you might be the sacrifice that would turn the karma around for the next person. The, uh, kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, it's a sacrifice yeah. in that yeah. situation. Most of us don't want to be sacrifices. No, Jesus was. We don't want. We don't need that. We got that. (laughs) (laughs) And and if you take this, all of this, as a way of 
of subverting an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it, it kind of makes sense that way. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's definitely going against that. Oh, Ponero. Oh, boy. <laughs> Here we go, fun. Literally, don't resist the one who is evil. That's what it says here. Literally, from the Greek. Wow. I was hoping it was going to be more like the Moffat reading, but it's not. Moffat's interpreting it heavily. Uh, resist an evil person. Don't resist one who intends to do evil to you. But I would change. I would say resist here has the connotation of respond to. Yeah. Let me so look. if somebody breaks in and they, you know, have a gun and they're killing you off one by one, you know, don't resist. Just stand there and be killed. Time is punctilier. Well, don't anti stay anti stay Don't 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 stand against. Don't respond to. Don't react to. Which is a little different. That is a little yeah. different. Mm -hmm. anti stay anti Don't don't stand against. Literally. You tell your kids that. For instance, Morgan, we just came had that conversation today where one kid was bullying another kid. And Morgan's response was, not, well, I commented to Morgan, I said, you know, they need to do more of what you do in terms of being mean to you. You just walk away. You don't get angry with them because you you're not going to change them. But that's don't don't stand up to might be a good way to respond to it. Don't don't resist, but it's more of don't don't react to. Is that what you yeah, don't react to? Anti stay don't, don't do the same thing. Anti stay Which makes more sense. Anti stay talking about to stand up against an eye for an eye yeah. and a tooth for a tooth. If he's saying, but I say unto you, don't react the way they do. Don't don't, don't do react the same do. thing that they're doing. Don't respond by demanding a tooth for your tooth or an eye for, for your eye. Don't respond in kind, which was what we said earlier. Yeah, but that makes sense. But this but that's is different than yeah, what this seems to say. Yeah, well, but the, in the context and what he responds to the law with, I mean, he cites it in verse 38, and then he responds, but I say to you, do not stand against an evildoer. That's, that's still not. Well, this is saying that thing that I've heard before. I've heard sermons on this, and I've heard it both ways. Where it's talking about strikes, uh -huh. and they say literally the Greek verb, when it strikes, means slap you with the back of the hand, which is an insult. And they're the whole thing is revolving around not being... Uh, litigious, not going to court, and that the Syrian yes. society was taking everybody to court at the time, we get and that's the, what they're really talking about. We get about. the word rap, as in to rap upon, yeah. from the Greek word rapse, which means to slap with the back of your hand. But, you know, it goes so far beyond the do not resisting, you know. Uh -huh. uh, if, if they strike you, why, you know, give them, give the them another shot at you. You know, the, uh, if, they, if they want to sue you, why don't fight it? Give them all you got. You know, the, uh, Whereas the law with the man, if they strike you, strike them back. back you know, the, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Or so resist and take them to court. And this is saying don't take it to court. Do that other uh -huh. thing I was talking about. That's the more civilized way of responding. Yeah. Take them to court, which everybody was doing. Back. And still, gee, that's still very hard. Yeah. And most of us don't do this. Mm -hmm. we, do, we do the next best thing. We do not respond in kind and, ex and extricate ourselves from the situation as quickly, as speedily as possible. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what I do. I don't fight. I've been mugged. When they came up and mugged me, 
I gave him my watch, I gave him my wallet, I gave him my keys, and they ran. That was, I was pastoring Oak Cliff. I was out walking in the park down from the church, and this gang of guys came up to me, four guys came up to me. Each had a knife and one had a gun, and they demanded what I had. So I pulled out my wallet and then started to take off my watch. They didn't even ask for it. Pulled out my keys. They didn't ask for them. Handed them to them. I looked at them and they ran. <coughs> of course, the rest of the story. They didn't get <laughs> my car because they didn't know which one it was. <laughs> that was back before you had the clicker that make the noise. Uh-huh. And um, the rest of the story is, and I think I've told that here, is that um, I, of course, I reported it to the police. Now, should you have done that? Well, technically no. Uh, I reported it to the police, and the next day I received word that was a gang initiation hit. One of the boys who was part of that, of the four, was being initiated into the gang. And they were very, very, very superstitious. And since they hit a clergyman, they induced bad karma on their gang, so they rubbed him out. And then they put into an envelope, somebody did, my wallet, sands the dollars, but everything else was there. My keys, my watch, and dropped it on the steps of the church. Hmm. The church, wow. And I just, I said, I mean, they killed the boy who's being initiated because he chose me and I happen to be clergyman? Yeah, that's bad luck for the gang. Clearly it was for him. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, I had to, wow. And that, that happened in Oak Hill. Mm-hmm. When I was pastor at Cockrell Hill oh my God. in 1993. Now, if you had been walking with a collar. They never would have touched me. would have never touched and it was after that that I, I, I wore the collar before then. It was after that I wore it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, okay. In that area. How did they find out you were clergy? Because my wallet That's had wallet. business oh, cards and my, my driver's license photo had me oh, dressed that way. Too, yeah. And when they found that out, they killed the kid. I just, oh. Maybe you should have resisted. And then they wouldn't have killed us. That brought up a thought in my mind. I bet it did. Well, then I would have been dead. That's right. And then Maybe. the other kid would have died, and then probably the others would have died because they killed me. <clears throat> but that was back when they would not tag a church in Oak Cliff, especially a church that was on the border between two zones, gang zones, because that was considered bad luck. So any, back, back good to any questions or thoughts? I don't wow. think we finished. No, we haven't. <laughs> what? We haven't. What? I mean, we have the first section. We have. I mean, really, you can separate the two sections. To get do the begging rule. The second, I suppose, resolve the first one. I don't think we've resolved the first one yet. Have we? Well, I mean, as a whole, it's certainly consistent that if anybody was thinking that they were even coming close to approximating the law, this shatters them. I mean, anybody oh, yeah. who's honestly looking Precisely. at themselves against what Jesus is saying. You did it again. Say, you thought you were doing good by short. You were you 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 were thinking you were doing good by taking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh-uh. Ah, thanks for playing. No. <laughs> Game over. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred because this this wipes it out. Totally. There's no way 
that by doing the verse 38, you could approximate what God's will would be as articulated by Jesus in 39 and following. Now, take a look down where it says, uh, give to anyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Do we do that? That's right. Went to New York depends, several depends years ago. Borrowing, huh? Was coming up to the down to the bottom of the long escalator down to the subway station. There was a man laying across the threshold. There was no handcuff, no way you could go around him because he was all the way across the threshold at the bottom of the escalator. You had to step over him. But people weren't stepping over him. They were stepping on him, kicking him. And I can remember we stepped over, and then several of us stopped and turned around and tried to get him to get out. He goes, no, this is where I get the best money. (laughs) Yeah, but you're getting stepped on and stomped and kicked. It's worth it. It's money. Try to get him out of there. Mm-hmm. We'll give you more if you'll move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll make more than he could possibly give me. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's far beyond our ability to do that. Okay, any thoughts? Any more? Well, this Pharisaic um, wording in here in the commentary section yeah. says that they're probably talking about the poor. When they see everyone who begs from you, they're probably referring to helping the poor out because of the people they're talking to that have poor people in it well, and rich people. I mean, yes, in that. a sense, it says everyone. Yeah, it says everybody, but yeah, that's not what they're saying. Who's going to be begging from you? No, the poor, usually the people that don't have the money. In the nominal cultural context, both then and here, yeah. yeah. And yet, we got poor who drive up here. To get food from our food pantry, they drive a better car than I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Newer car. And they sometimes ask for gas money too, don't they? Yeah. I remember when I first moved down here, go to West Dallas, all the projects over there, they drive better cars than I was. <laughs> and that's all project. I was like, damn, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> you know, with a, it is one thing when you're talking about strangers, uh-huh. right, which has pretty much been the conversation here. But it's interesting when you. Look, turn that around and you look at um, people who are wanting, uh, let's say, to borrow money so you help them out. Uh, but at some point, you know, they'll come back and they'll do it again. Uh-huh. There's an enabling, you know, uh, and I don't know if I'm trying to be a Pharisee or what, or it's, it just doesn't seem to me to be. Um, Saying, just get, if anybody comes up to you, you know, give it to them, and then give it to them again, and give it to them again, as if there's no responsibility put on the other person. And I think there's a dis- difference between a person who's a giving wants to give, uh-huh. but knows if I give, it's not the, it, it's not going to help them. You know, teach, you give a person a fish yeah, versus sure. teaching them. It doesn't seem. I, I, I don't think it's talking in those in those terms. Here. Maybe it's addressing the problem yeah, that's like practical said, with the law. People thinking right. I'm doing I'm doing the right things. So I'm keeping the law, 
and Jesus is going beyond that saying the law calls us to a far greater degree of generosity well think about what we do to Jesus (laughs) and you know we certainly don't deserve to be given what we receive but, but we receive it anyway God gives it to us anyway even when, we, but he gives it to us, true, but for repentance as well. He doesn't, uh-huh. not everybody is. Everybody receives God's grace in some aspect or other, even if it's just general revelation. God is always giving without restriction, even to those who do not want and refuse to receive. It's their natural revelation to be given what's we call prevenient grace, the grace that goes before anything that we do. God I think is, it has something to do with that. It has to do with our our reaction to these things that confront us. You know, I'm not saying that, that I don't agree with reactions that are alternatives to this, you know, but it seems like he's talking about the the law gives you this opportunity to judge right at the beginning, you know, is this is this something I should do or not? Whereas whereas he's this this seems to say do different, you know, do something different, you know. Error, judge, error on the side of be compassionate. Given. Error yeah. on the side of grace. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Instead of law, which is the point here. I error think. on the side of what's been given to you, you mean, and everybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, much has been given to you. Um, fabulous uh, practical advice and what we do here at the church. We don't give to everybody. If they've come three and four times in the last several months, we don't necessarily give them food. But it's a case-by-case basis. And I mean, we had somebody show up today. They says, we need some gas. And I said, you want me to be at the gas station? And I said, yeah. I went to the gas station. I noticed he had a wife and a baby in the car. It looked like everything they owned was in that car. So while I was getting them their gas and he was pumping it, I asked, does the baby need anything? Oh yeah, they had several. He wanted milk and they didn't have any diapers. Oh, that's easy. So we took care of that. I mean, that was on a case-by-case basis though. I mean, there'll be people who come in here looking for money and we tell them, I'm sorry, no. And it's just how you, what you feel at the moment. Or what your experience with them has been, especially when they've taken us for several hundred. Well, of course, this says, <laughs> you go on the mile, go, don't, don't be afraid to go the second mile. Of course, my question then after but verse 41 is, what about the third mile, Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> and you only go two. <laughs> Does it appear to say that, I guess? And is there really something that's... Does it appear to say that, or does it really want you to... To do that, because there's, it seems like there's, he contradicts himself in other places uh-huh. where, for instance, if you're talking about sharing the gospel, and this is only one that comes to mind, you can probably come to others, you know, he says, dust your feet off if they won't accept it and sure. go somewhere else. So if the response isn't there, That money, that, that could have been sold and the money given to the poor. You have the poor with you always. Not, not, if, you keep, not, if, you, not if you do this. Exactly. You'll be one of the poor. You'll be one yeah, of the poor. Really, in response to that, that the gift of ointment should have been sold, and the money should have been given to the poor. Point to this. And Judas was right. I was going to say Judas. <laughs> Thank you, Judas. You just beat me to that. No, he wanted to steal from the box, which is he how it's more, interpreted. More money. <laughs> but my point 
And then we could we could reentrench ourselves into law, and that's exactly what we're doing when we debate this issue. If we then say, well, he says only the second mile, not the third. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, how many cheeks do you have? And <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm literally. I mean, well, coat and cloak. Does that mean your underwear? Does that mean your shoes? I mean, you could end up you could end up becoming the legalist on the whole thing too. Yeah, but isn't that what he did? I mean, he gave up him and his disciples. Didn't they give up everything? He gave up himself. He died. Yeah, right, but I mean, prior to that, they mm-hmm. gave up everything and went and, and and preached to people. They gave up their lives, their livelihoods. Their well, families. they walked in and expected others to do this. This is what he's talking about. Isn't he? And he said, don't take anything with you that you will be provided for people. Yeah. Now what he, so he's, if the people believe this, they'd be okay. But if they didn't believe this, they wouldn't be okay. We don't have time to do it, but immediately following this, in the immediate next verses, we have the, you've heard it said unto you, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which, by the way, is from the law. But <laughs> I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise, that's S-U-N, rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which all this, by the way, informs everything we've read this far. Everything we've read this far. This we're going to pick it up next time at the beginning mm-hmm. of next year. But this, that last verse, I think, nailed, it's Jesus nailing it home. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that in the context of if you're going to keep the law, if you're wanting to keep the law, be perfect? Or is that is that speaking of be perfected as saints in, towards that sanctification as God is? I mean, it, it, at one point... Because we can't be perfect on, on our own. If it, as, as your heavenly Father is perfect, that sets the bar eternally high. And guess what? We know that is of ourselves impossible. And yet, that's what Jesus here says. Which means that his interpretation of the law at each one of these points, pushing it beyond our ability to do, points out that, quite frankly, we cannot of ourselves and in and of ourselves do that. We need those Pharisees to come. We either need the Pharisees to come in and help it, and that's what the church has done. Century after century, incarnation after incarnation of the church has come along and established a new set of rules and regulations by which we can live according to their understanding of what perfection is. And that's the same thing the Pharisees did then, and the answer is no. We can't do that. Instead, we live another way. Not this rule. Not this law. We live in the graciousness that is reflected in this law. That would give, that would forgive, that calls us to be a people who gives and forgives just as we have been forgiven and given to. We've also sat here and tried to interpret this for ourselves, you know, and we've got good luck. You know, 
<laughs> we're coming up with something that allows us to drive past the beggar or whatever, you know, oh, somewhere. Right? I just do it. I feel bad about it afterwards. Well, that's the answer. Well, that's what we do. Yeah, but the gentleman you spoke to on the bottom yeah. of the escalator, I mean, truly that was what he wanted to do. He, yeah. he wanted to be that. He wanted to be there. Yeah. You he got more money when he got kicked. Because the people behind the people who kicked him right. felt sorry for him. Like we did. And we tried to entice him to go bribe him to come away from there by giving him more. And, and see, that, he didn't want that. There's such a difference, it seems. In terms he wanted of to earn his money. What's the matter with you? Enabling him to... You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.